Hello, welcome back to the Homefront History Podcast. Now, we're recording on Monday the 10th of April, which in the UK is a bank holiday. Um, and I'll just kick off this uh, episode by talking about... Actually, I'll <laughs> present the question to my fellow podcasters here. Did you know the August bank holiday was cancelled in 1940? No. No. <laughs> Good. It's as if we planned this. Good. Let me, let me tell you all about it. So... I, you know, obviously it was bank holiday and I was just milling about at home like you do. And I just started researching and I found August bank holiday cancelled on the newspaper archive. And I was like, wow. So according to my research, the, the Easter bank holiday didn't, it didn't get cancelled. It, it went ahead. Um, and the reason I found that out because the mirror reported the football that was going on that weekend. Then I cross-referenced football scores. Then I found punch-ups that were reported in local newspapers are from the Easter bank holiday. So I was like, right, definitely went ahead because people went to the football <laughs> and they got pissed. So it's two and things. And then they got scrapped, yeah. Yeah, so that's three things that I associate with um, the bank holiday, drinking, football and punch-ups. Yeah. Um, so it all went ahead. So in August 1940, by that time, invasion fears have ramped. You've got the Battle of Britain is going on. So on June uh, the 14th, uh, 1940 the daily mirror reported and it is, this is on page nine and it goes with august bank holiday ban they say this year there will be no august bank holiday empty offices idle uh, factories packed seaside resorts merry-go-rounds on hansie heath britain must keep work until victory is won but that does not mean every man and woman must go on working without a break only that there must be no complete stoppage of factories the government is cancelling the bank holiday under defence regulations. It hopes, however, that arrangements will be made for workers to have rest periods and an occasional day off. If you are lucky enough to have a country holiday, the government would like you to offer your services to farmers. Mr Ralph Ashton, Parliamentary Secretary to the Ministry of Labour, told the House of Commons yesterday. Um, and then they were, uh, later on the article, they mentioned about payment and if they're going to get paid and if the army are going to get paid more for that day because traditionally they would and it's all a big thing. This is page nine. Page nine. Yeah, you think it'd be like front page. <laughs> yeah. Imagine now, yeah. now they've cancelled bank holiday. You're bang on page nine. Yeah. yeah. I think maybe because there's a war going away. on. Do you think there's think other maybe... stuff that they're talking about? Do you think? I don't know. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> some some sort of some insurrection had happened in Europe and it was all going off. <laughs> um, so the next month, July. So on the 30th, um, uh, Hansard has, has come up with this one. Thank God they document what goes on in Parliament. Um, <laughs> yep. Well, they didn't have WhatsApp yeah. back then, did they? <laughs> See, I love the listeners are learning. If you listen to the Final Film podcast, you'll know. But listeners are finding out my scattergun presentation method here. <laughs> Live. So, Mr. Pym asks, and he was an MP at the time, he asked the President of Board of Trade, uh, Sir Andrew Duncan, whether the desire of the government that businesses' establishments throughout the country uh, should remain open on Monday the 5th, particularly having in regard to the difficulties which may otherwise result in the reception of goods. And uh, Andrew Duncan replied, yes, sir, the bank holiday has been cancelled by defence regulations and it is the wish of the government that businesses should proceed normally on that day. I would add, on any day on which it is found necessary to close establishments for repair or cleaning or other reasons, it is desirable in the national interest that arrangements should be made for the reception of goods in order to avoid both wastage of labour, time, fuel, and also to avoid delays in the clearance of traffic. So, you know, it's pretty serious. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah. And then on the 3rd of July, going back a bit, um, the beaches were closed anyway from 5am 
to 5 p.m. Um, yeah. And it's 10 miles of beaches from Brighton to West Worthing. Um, they were so they were closed just during the day? No, 5 p.m. at night till 5 a.m. in the yeah, morning. Yeah, 5 in the morning. Yeah. Oh, okay. So during the day they're open? Yeah. Okay, so that's fine. So invasion, like, that's fine. They're going to happen. Like, it's going to happen at 5 p.m. It's going to happen. Landmines yeah. only work between those hours of um, yeah. five in the morning to five yeah. in the afternoon. You know, well, the, the, the Germans didn't find out. Can you imagine? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, if they landed during the day, they'd be fine. Well, because you know, in in the Dad's Army movie, they're looking over a really powerful telescope, so they would have seen the beaches were clogged. <laughs> you're not you're not going to land your invasion force when the beaches is full of people with towels and things. That's you know, true. It'd be really inconvenient. Yeah, yeah um, they just getting the way the tanks. And yeah, stuff. exactly. And their reputation at that point. The Germans is already a bit tarnished, so you're not going to machine gun a full beach of people. It's not going to add to your reputation, <laughs> right. especially if you're well, going to be an occupying force after. What they could yeah, have done, they, you don't want to spoil the holiday. They, no. could have sent, they could have sent some sappers in early to put towels down before anyone else. Ah, uh, yeah, a mass, <laughs> a massive towel. You know. Oh, we can't do anything about this. We'll, oh. <laughs> so <laughs> we'll just let them drive the tanks on the beach. Yeah. Sorry, so the, uh, no, no, it's no problem. So the uh, obviously the bank holidays cancelled. Um, there were various reports in local newspapers saying that you know there were still people out and about. Um, businesses still saw a tiny upturn in trade, but it was there weren't as many non-local residents around. Um, people yeah. had, you know, by and large obeyed kind of. Um, the Daily Mail reported on the the day after the bank holiday that the uh, beaches at Brighton were still packed um, with you know holiday makers um whether it said you know whether they're people who have like you know skipped work or have, have just you know taken the opportunity to, to, to still have fun they did it um, but they did mention how eerily like uh sorry eerily deserted that the brighton piers were yeah because they'd been closed on the same page of that army curfew report about the beaches um there's a amazing uh, piece on how to fire a rifle if you don't know if you saw on my twitter yeah amazing. Um, it, and it's for everyone. And it's like it's part of a series. So hopefully give me a few weeks and I'll have a bit more on that because I want to nice. find all of them if I can. Um, but yeah, really what, weird. Part of the yeah. series, so they've got fire, what, do you, have you any idea what else, like make a Molotov? Yeah, so there's like elevation, how elevation of a rifle works using the sights, how firing it works. So me and Chris yeah. were talking off air saying, well, you know, is this for people who are going to take up a rifle? But it's not for the home guard. Yeah. It doesn't say expressively for the home guard only. Sounds a bit um, Tom Wintringham to me. It's a little bit. It yeah. does sound very. It's uh, it's. It reminds me of. I don't know if you um, have heard of the Liberator pistol. Yes. You know that it was the that really cheap and nasty um, gun that the. Uh, it was either the I know it was the Americans. But it might have been the OSS, and the idea was they drop them behind enemy lines, and you you get this gun uh, which had a couple of forty five point four five rounds in it, and you know it was a single shot. And the idea was that you'd shoot that into someone and steal their rifle, but it came with this little set of instructions that were in their kind of cartoon form that showed you how to use the gun. It just kind of reminded me of that. You know, it, it yeah. does seem very much like you're going down the street, you find an abandoned rifle. This is how to use it in the event of an invasion. You know, yeah, it I seems think, that I, way. I think there is that. There was, I remember my, my, um, my grand saying that, um, so her, as I think I said before, her dad was, mm. uh, worked for the Bank of England. He'd been evacuated down yeah. to down to Hampshire and um so it's just her her mum and her sister and her mum had kept um the first world war revolver that he'd brought back uh in the drawers and she was very prepared to use it and my granddad said that um uh his family had each allocated themselves a carving knife 
uh, wow. to, to take out a German had they entered the house. So I, I, I think, you know, you know, Churchill said, always take one with you in, in a, in a kind of, yeah. kind of hinting to that, like suicidal civilian. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and, 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 you know, if you, I guess that's part of this, isn't it? If you find a, yeah. if you find a rifle, yeah. it's no good well, to you. Let you know, and they, you know how talking to of, talking of like taking one with you, that being a bit mad. Um, so that whole page of the Daily Mirror on that day mm. is absolutely insane. So you've got adverts for like beer and cigarettes on one little bit of it. Then yeah. you've got a picture of a of a of the war widow of the first VC winner collecting the VC first VC of the war, one in Narvik. Mm. Um, and then you've got next to that, almost like you know, in the crease of the newspaper, mm. is a, an article about. Um, hoping that 16 year old boys who had been in the cadets would take up arms and defend London because they've got rifle experience. And then below that is that rifle advert. It's insane. I'm like, I think we don't, I think we take for granted how invasion fear really was in 1940. Yeah. Yeah, correct. I mean, we'll we'll, we'll go obviously go into depth about it another time, but my, the the section seven. So, so um, for those who don't know, I, I research, uh, the secret layers of civilian defence uh, that would have been there to resist an invasion and then an, an occupation. And Section 7 yeah. was set up as like a post-occupation resistance, so very much like the French resistance mm. uh, by by SIS, highly secret, all that kind of stuff. But they were they were yeah. training 14-year-old, 13, 14-year-old boys to be snipers. Wow. Um, wow. Throughout the country. So so from Liverpool, there's uh, one chap, well, chap in Liverpool, chap in Nottingham, Shire, Chapin, Leicestershire, yeah. Chapin, Hampshire, all said to their families, and I, these all came from their families, uh, not not connected separately. Uh, yeah. They all said that their grandfather said that as a 13, 14 year old, they'd been recruited into this thing. A lot of them were ARP messengers or in the ATC. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And they'd been recruited into this thing. They weren't sure what it was, um, but they were trained by, and they all used a term, the very similar terms. Uh, they were all trained by essentially terrifying ex-First World War NCOs who were in uniform but with no insignia. So it wow. looks like SIS, who were not supposed to be operating in the UK at all, uh, mm. had recruited lots of ex-First World War NCOs who were then training these boys how to be snipers, how to be assassins. Wow. Uh, and God. then, just before I published the book, family got in touch about a guy called William Hughes, who was in Liverpool, who was a First World War sharpshooter in the Liverpool Regiment. And he told his family that during he had like seven kids. He's like early 40s. Uh, he joined what he called a special home guard, but then post-war read about the auxiliary units and so presumed mm. it was auxiliary units. It wasn't. Right. He this group and he was training teenagers in the tunnels underneath the Mersey about how to be sleepers. Amazing. No way. Wow. Amazing. God, yeah. So um, I, I can't sorry. remember. There was um, a film that came out probably about 10, 15 years ago that was about the invasion of England and Resistance. If I focused on one, well, I think it was it's the same Wales. I think actually, yeah, post yeah. D Day. Because yeah. doesn't that show a child with the right, uh, sorry, a teenager with a rifle and he's zeroing it with a target on the back of his door? Yeah, I'm sure yeah, that's that, yeah. That's that was about the Orcs units, and it was. <sighs> Mm. You'll have to come on Final Film and review that, Andy. I'll Mate. cut that, but you'll have to. <laughs> I'll be very happy to. Oh, that'd be great. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I know that is that film. 
but, it, but it's mental yeah. though, isn't it? And and I yeah. th- and I think but, but I think you're right. People forget just how you know whether whether Churchill and the and the government really believe they'd be invaded or not. They mm. they certainly made the population think mm. that that would be the case for whatever reason. People were 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 desperate and scared, but also at the same time determined and hugely patriotic about defending their little patch of land or their, mm. you know, their, their house whatever so yeah 14 year old snipers is mental but it but it happened amazing just to quickly finish my bank holiday chat um so and the bank holiday over christmas was also cancelled um on christmas day so the christmas day bank holiday <gasps> in 1940 was cancelled <gasps> and it was, that was reported in late november so a month basically a month wow. beforehand wow. So the, the daily that, and this wasn't even for this was first page news in the yeah. daily mirror um but it was tiny little column on the front page it wasn't the lead the lead thing was about about um, looters being hanged well they should hang looters because right. crime had gone up and they were like well if we hang them then it surely stop um because people will you know what not want to loot if they're going to get hung but mm. and, you know anyway we're talking about a bank holiday that's for another episode um, so the government said uh, the government have planned to, to stay put for Christmas. There are to be no extra travel facilities either then or at the new year. War workers are asked to take only one day off, either on Christmas Day or New Year's Day. Already forecast there'll be no bank holiday on Christmas Day in Scotland or on Boxing Day in England, Wales and Northern Ireland. The Ministry of Labour announced last night the flow of production for war purposes is great and ever increasing in spite of efforts of the enemy to impede it. But this is not the moment for any slackening off. Wow. Jesus. Well, it's that <laughs> it's that it's really interesting, isn't it? It's that all powerful government. It, it, it's all it's like a dictatorship. The amount of control mm. that, that 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 the Churchill government had at that point mm. by by implementing all these rules is is yeah. you know, and, and no one really blinked an eyelid. You know, they just got on with got it. On with it. Got and, on with it, yeah. And accepted yeah. it, which is really interesting, isn't it? Really mm. interesting psychology that's, around that. And that's it. That's only for 1940. Yeah. So I don't know if wow. they went on banning them or they were relaxed. Yeah. I know later on in the war, they bring in the holiday at home scheme mm. where you're encouraged mm. not to travel and they put on events and things like that. Butlins was you know not being used as well. But there were people that did. There were holiday camps set up as well yeah. for this holidays at home thing. And we'll talk more about that in a later episode. I'm going to do something about Butlins for us. In the next few weeks, brilliant. Um, nice. But I thought that was interesting. You know, recording on a really bank holiday. There we yeah, go. Yeah, that was really, really cool. Really? Yeah, ne- never, heard, never heard of that. No, um, I had neither. Especially 1940 as well. I, I, yeah, I just never come across that. Really, mm. really interesting. Yeah, no, it's, yeah. it's interesting how it. You know, we, we're seeing as the invasion fears ramp. You know, the earlier bank holidays, no problem. Post Dunkirk, yeah, everything starts ramping a little bit. I think it gets. Mm. Maybe in the public eyes, yeah, it gets I, more serious. That phony period is dying away, and it's yeah, yeah. yeah that, I, that sudden realization that it is actually real. Because mm, mm. by the time of that cancellation, the British Army, had, you know, had a, had a defeat in Narvik, not Narvik, yeah. Norway. Sorry, and had a defeat up there. Yeah. So the war's getting more serious, um, yeah, but it's yeah. interesting, you know. And that's what this podcast is for. What to do in an air raid? Get undercover at once. Don't stand staring at the sky. Take cover at once. Okay, right, it's on to me again. Um, so, yeah, this, uh, after last week of, uh, you know, I'm sure a very interesting talk on uh, on the regulars. Um, it was solid. <laughs> I've, 
Oh, thank you, thank you so much. Um, I decided to sit back and relax and start to look at um, building a pillboxes. So um, it was after the talk last week that I do need to issue a correction here that uh, I think I said that Thetford was defended by the 52nd Lowland, and a day later I found out that it wasn't. It was the 18th uh, Infantry Division, um, but they sat right on the border between the 18th and the 52nd, so uh, easy mistake to make. But it's still Thetford still wasn't defended by the Home Guard in 1940 to 42 anyway, so that's the important thing. You're still correct. <laughs> um, but yeah, it just got me uh, so far. Uh, <laughs> um yeah, I've been looking at uh, a war diary for um, one of the uh, Royal Engineer Field Companies that was attached to Two Corps, which was responsible for building defences um, in the area of Thetford and that part of Norfolk. And it just got me thinking about, um, you know, we know a lot about uh, pillboxes and how they were generally made, but it just got me thinking about how long would it actually take to build a pillbox? But I've heard it quoted from a chap called uh, Colin Dobinson, who did a well, he's, he's really good. He's done a fantastic piece of work in the mid-1990s. And he quoted that at the high construction period, it took, well, a pillbox was completed every 20 minutes. So that doesn't mean it took 20 minutes to build one. It means that, that was, there was one completed every 20 minutes wow. on average, um, according to Dominson, which is really... That really is, but that kind of gives you an idea of, as we'll see later as we go through this, how concentrated the period of construction must have been. Um, so I started looking at, so I've got, um, a collection, you know, I've been collecting, uh, military manuals for years, um, you know, just out of interest. And then they've come in really useful for the work I do as an archeologist. And obviously you guys are, um, in podcast land, aren't going to be able to see this, but I've got in my hands here a really, as we were saying in the first ever podcast, how paper went really rubbish really quickly uh, in the second <laughs> world war. This is, um, a manual called the Royal Engineers Pocketbook, and this is pamphlet number 14, Concrete Work in the Field. And this was published in actually on the 27th of August 1941, so still within that anti the invasion scare period. And the paper of this thing is really thin. And um Andy and Robbie are going to be able to see this, but when I show that, it's not even printed straight on the front page. Mm -hmm. It's been yeah, it's not it's straight. And not anyone, one, anyone who's bought any manuals or books from the Second World War, you notice how yeah. shoddily the framing is on the cuts or you know, yeah. just anything like that. Anything that would be more professional after the war, it just goes out the window. This is really poor, but it's a useful little uh, little manual to have. And these are getting increasingly hard to find. But yeah, this is uh, pamphlet number 14 for anyone who has got a copy and wants to check this up um, later. And towards the back, in well, it's, it outlines literally everything that you would need to know about concrete, from how to mix it um, all the way through to how big the rebar needs to be and all this stuff. It's a mine of information that I've barely, you know, I've only just started trawling this. But handle, handily in table 18, this has a schedule of operations for the labour and time suggested for a uh, 100 cubic yards of a typical pillbox built in good weather so this outlines um, a total of like 13 stages that we need to go through to um, build a relatively small and simple pillbox in good weather uh, so it outlines everything from preparing the site so building your cement shed for example storing uh, creating your ballast dumps you know it says that you need four skilled and 20 unskilled laborers to do that over 36 hours and it goes on for to setting out, which would be preparing the site and the foundations, you know, excavation and drainage, um, fixing the steel for the rebar in place, pouring the concrete to the first floor. Um, so generally, when you build a pillbox, you're building it in stages. You don't build it. You don't cast it all in one go. You 
pour what's known as a lift of concrete. So that is like a le first layer of concrete. You let that cure, then you pour another one on top, and then generally stick your roof on. But this is very very broad. You know, each how each pillbox was built is completely different. Uh, but yeah, this is a just gives you a really nice outline of the thirteen stages at this time of the war that was deemed necessary to build a single pillbox, a relatively small one. It goes into the detail of how many uh, picks and shovels you need and all this stuff. Um, and it's, yeah, there's just a shed load of stuff in this. Um, you know, materials, how long you need to cure the site, whether you need skilled or unskilled labour. What's really handy is it gives you times for how long it would take you to complete every single one of these tasks. And like I say, 13, there's 13 tasks, you know, things like um, fixing the second lift would take 24 hours and all this type of stuff. And when you add this up, it gives you a figure of about 208 hours to build a single pillbox. So you consider... Wow. You know, the earlier um, earlier quote of a pillbox was built uh, or completed every 20 minutes. You consider that, you know, based on this manual that they were using at the time, it would have taken on average 208 hours of, you know, skilled and unskilled labor to create a single pillbox, which is, you know, I found that relatively interesting. It gives us something to work with. So obviously, you know, every single pillbox was different and obviously they would have streamlined the process as they were building it, became more experienced or depending on who was building them. Um I mentioned a bit ago that I've also got the 1944 copy of this and shown it to Robbie and Andy. This one's actually rather nice. This has got nice. It's got a bit nice. of cardboard on the front of it. Look at that. Oh, lovely. And it's uh, it's not all wobbly and shoddy. Um, but this has got the same table in the back of it. And again, it's outlining this process of building a single pillbox in good weather. So I, I'm guessing there would have been some variation if the weather was chucking it down and all this. I guess it'd take a bit longer. But what's interesting is by 1944, they've actually streamlined the process a bit. And they've reduced it from a 13-part process to a 10-part process to build a pillbox, which is quite interesting, really, because pillbox has been obsolete for two years by this point. I was going to say, um, so, they, weren't, they weren't building with 1944, though, so why are they... No, that's why I don't... I'm guessing for future reference or building them on the front, um, but yeah, pillboxes officially became obsolete in February 1942, and many had been okay. stopped, uh, you know, many uh, commands had stopped construction in around August 1941. Could, so they become... Could it be yeah, something on, about maybe building them overseas, perhaps? I can only assume so, yeah. And this information has clearly been updated. Yeah, maybe. maybe. For, yeah. Uh, um, you've also got things like, um, so in the UK, when they're building uh, searchlight batteries, they stick a pillbox at the rear to cover it in defence. So maybe it was uh, guidance for doing that over in Europe or elsewhere. No, that's mm. true. Uh, that makes sense. But, but, you know, it's probably part of a wider a wider thing. But clearly they were updating this guidance even into 944 which is quite interesting given the pillboxes were officially deemed obsolete in the uk at least yeah, um yeah and this streamlines the process to a um 10 point process for building a single pillbox and it reduces the required amount of time to, from what was it 208 hours yeah 208 hours to 174 which i find i just find that fascinating there's got to be a, a reason for this um but it gives you gives you this it shows you very clearly that um the Royal Engineers and the powers that be that were building these things were clearly taking into consideration how long it would take to build these things and streamline the process. There was a, you know, they weren't just saying, right, go and build a pillbox. They had, especially in 941, they had everything worked out to how many bloody shovels you need to uh, build a pillbox and how many skilled and unskilled laborers you have and how many hours it takes you for curing your concrete and all this stuff. So I just found that well, it's, it's <laughs> rather, rather interesting. The more efficient you make it, the less time these guys have to make them, the more yeah, time they exactly can spend right. 
yeah. possibly defending them or going and doing other vital work. Yeah. What's really interesting well, is compa- comparing building a pillbox to building an uh, auxiliary unit operational base. So we've got some yeah. Royal Engineer notes about the amount of time it should take to build a, an OB or dig a, dig an OB, and that yeah. they should be done in 24 hours. <clears throat> it should all be wow. done. So oh, wow. Put in the... Dig a pit. Put in Is the elephant. Hut sections? Oh, elephant shelter. But the that Royal Engineers. The auxiliary <laughs> beat you by hundreds <laughs> the, of hours. Put the block work in, do the hatch, do the... Do the so that's... And that's... Great. But obviously the difference is building a pillbox on the surface, you can be as unsubtle as you like. You have to yeah. <laughs> you have to build an OB quickly because no one's supposed to know about it and get out. And so they so they used to use yeah. uh, they used to use searchlight um uh, sites as a as a cover for building an OB. So if someone asked the question what's going on there, oh. we're building a searchlight or an exploded bomb or something like that. So they'd do it really That's quickly. interesting. Like a men, uh, group of like oh, I forgot what they said, 20 men. Doing it, doing it sharpish, getting it, getting it done. Right. Really interesting. Oh, that's really yeah, interesting. Another one on, on on OBs, maybe a a, a special episode, but yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Preparing. Well, that'd be cool. Because um, yeah, like I, said, I just found that absolutely fascinating. So obviously, I don't want this to turn into a myth that all pillboxes took two hundred eight hours to build or whatever. You know, this is just the example based on the documents I have. Um, you know, to hand. So it could have taken longer. It could have taken a lot shorter, but. It just gives us something, you know, an idea of next time you see a pillbox, you know, just think about how much effort went into building that, how much time, you know, and um, looking at the resources. Well, so I'm just going to quickly plug. Uh, so Peter Hibbs is a chap who uh, I've worked with extensively, and he's literally the best of the best in terms of wartime pillboxes and stuff. Um, if you go to pillbox.org.uk, Pete did a really, really good um, kind of like forensic analysis of a single box and how many bricks went into building it and all this stuff and a check out website to get an insight into how much we can learn from a single pillbox in terms of times and materials time and materials sorry um and things like that but like i say there's a lot more to these surviving structures they look relatively simple but when you start to consider how they were built and how long it takes to build a single one and the logistics behind that um you know, when I'm looking at the the war diary at the minute, it, they keep him running tallies of how long it's taking them to build pillboxes within a command area. So that, uh, in this case, is the whole of East Anglia. So everywhere from Kingsland in the north all the way down to the, the wash of the Thames, essentially. Uh, and they're keeping like, uh, I think it's like a weekly tally saying this pillbox is 80% complete. This one's 10%. We haven't started this Hang one. On. We haven't done the camouflage work on this one because we can't get grass seed and all this stuff. It's uh, you know, there's a shed load of information. Yeah. But yeah hopefully that gives um, the listeners something to think about, you know, how long it actually takes to build this stuff, especially when there's a bit of a rush on to get the defences um, completed or in a state of readiness for an invasion, you know. Yeah, and, and what's really interesting is the local variation. So the, the pillboxes near me mm. along the kind of coastline where, where I live, my beach is like massive pebbles. So they've utilised these huge pebbles within the... Ah, cool within the pillboxes so it's not just it's not like they've got a set thing this is what you must use yeah these dimensions blah 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 obviously there were different types but but they they had a certain amount of flexibility to use to use kind of local variations in in terms of i guess yeah. what, the, what the local environment demanded mm. local materials um local defense needs so there were many 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 hundred of um 
yeah, localized pillbox designs drawn up at uh, core and division, well, most likely core level um, and command level. And it's just one of the reasons why we see so much variation in pillbox design because different uh, areas had different um, views on what they required. Um, yeah, correct, correct. And, you know, that, and, you know what, what, what you're putting it on to all that stuff, you know, yeah, what not... weapons we have available. Yeah. Um, yeah what I need to defend, you know, and all this stuff. It's um it's just such a massively varied subject, you know. And I think localized, you know, as I said in the last podcast, localized study is the way to go with this stuff and then drawing comparisons across counties and mm. across different yeah, I must areas, get to these, you know, but I must get to these ones close to me for you. I keep threat I keep threatening I'm gonna do it. And I'm like, oh yeah, need to go and check them out. <laughs> There's great. And there's the one near me on the cliffs you can still get into. You can get into oh, yeah. like the steps down and us oh, brilliant. Nice. Sounds great. Right. I've got I've got one uh thing just to to, to add to this. So I'm I'm writing the my the second book at the moment. Um and uh it's all fine. Uh but uh obviously what I focus on are the are the really secret layers of civilian defense uh in the UK. And that, <clears throat> and obviously we'll do episodes on this, but it's made up of three or four main groups which which often get confused and overlapped and yeah. and you know now we're running out of this generation as they're all sadly passing on you know it's now down to kind of family stories on on the most part mm. but the, the 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 main groups are the auxiliary units which were made up of uh six to eight men patrols men only uh who were kind of farmers miners gamekeepers people who knew their local area intimately they were to blow up stuff as the germans came through uh to blow up the supply chain to slow down the advance then you had special duties branch which is like elderly people, vicars, doctors, teenagers, yeah. people who can stand on their street, watch the German army pass through, take message or take information down about insignia and units and weapons and numbers, write it on a piece of edible paper, put it in a dead letter drop. Several runners then take it to a civilian wireless operator who's usually got the wireless in their place of work. So vicars have had them in their altars, doctors have them in their surgeries, publicans in the roofs of their pubs. That's then passed on to ATS women who are in secret bunkers, uh, receiving the messages who then pass that on to GHQ or, or local command to, yeah. and that allows them to make informed decisions about British troop movements to counterattack. And the Blitzkrieg myth is kind of done because we know exactly where they're going and what numbers are working and stuff. Amazing. So both <laughs> of those groups are, are purely anti-invasion um, wow. and both had a life expectancy of two weeks. And, and most of these guys oh, knew wow. it. The, <laughs> Third kind of group is Home Guard guerrillas. So mm. Home Guard um, uh, platoons and, and companies would quite often have a home, or quite often, sometimes have a guerrilla section that was either known to the rest of the group or was entirely separate and secret. And is usually made right. up of the, of the younger members of the group, usually in the areas where the auxiliary units weren't operating because we've got paperwork of Home Guards trying to set up guerrilla sections in AUKS units areas, but couldn't because the AUKS units there and they were just told no. Right. So oh, that's cool. as well. And then finally, and there's lots of other intermingling stuff, but then there's this section seven stuff, which I talked about earlier, which is a post-occupation group of civilians, potentially tens of thousands of civilians were involved in this because I've got evidence of, as I said, throughout the country. And, and then we know, for example, that the uh, they did a trial in... Suffolk, Norfolk, Dorset, Devon and Cornwall. So we know oh. it's coastal areas as well. We know it's inland as well. So the AUKS units and special duties branch were just coastal. But we know Section 7 
is everywhere, right? And we know that a guy came forward, Peter Atwater, he was in Matlock in Derbyshire. He knew of two or three other cells around him because they were setting up an escape line for potential uh, um, enemies of the occupying German forces. Incredible. Wow. So we, know cool. this stuff, so we know this stuff is like countrywide. The thing is, with all of this stuff, is they all sign the Official Secrets Act. And, they, and they're of that generation of if they sign that Official Secrets Act, they're not going to tell anyone. And we've got lots of examples of people saying stuff in their deathbeds, essentially, relatives not really understanding or believing what was said. Uh, when they were told, they thought they've, you know, family members are going a bit delally in their in their old age. But what I'd love to hear from anyone is basically any stories they remember of their grandparents, their parents, their great uncle, whatever, of saying slightly weird stuff about what they did up, what they got up to in the war. And my grandfather is a really good example of this. So I started this auxiliary unit stuff 15 years ago. My granddad was still alive and I was asking him about it. He got a bit edgy. We left it. And it turns out, I think, that granddad was probably in section seven. Wow. Purely, purely, wow. Coincidentally, purely coincidentally, amazing coincidence, but I think he was probably saying, he mentioned that he he was a ARP messenger, he was in the ATC, he told my gran in the early 50s when they first met, I guess a quite an early courting question is, what did you do during the war? He said uh, he would have been, he would have been about 14 at the start of the war, he said he couldn't tell her what he did, uh, something secret, he mentioned dum-dum bullets, uh, oh. Occasionally, um, but he couldn't tell her what he did, and and you know, completely secret, com- like utterly, utterly secret. So stuff like that is stories that families are kind of clung onto that's in yeah. the back of their mind. Yeah, makes them think well, he did something. We're not sure he, he went a bit mental, or they'd say. So the auxiliary units quite often would say they're in like a special home guard unit, and then people think oh, that's just bollocks, Granddad. He's just trying to big up your big up your time in the home guard. But quite often, it turns out they were in either the home guard guerrilla section or mm. the auxiliary units. I just love, right. you know, love to hear some more of these. So we'll we'll put up an we'll put up an appeal post on the Twitter and the Facebook as yeah. well. Yeah. If you want to add to that, yeah. if you can help Andy, because yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, no, it's just amazing. And I think section seven, section seven, for example, there has to be thousands and thousands of people potentially involved in this, and we yeah. literally yeah. do like six. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Come on. Yeah, if anyone and that's knows men anything. and women, by the way. So Section 7, they yeah. were training women in combat roles. So women as honey traps. There's, we've got two examples. Right. Of, um, there's a girl, uh, lady called Irene Lockley who was 17 or 18 in 1940-1941. She was basically trained how to use a garrote, how to put together a Molotov cocktail, all that kind of stuff. So they God. were SIS were, had no problems in, in training women in basic terrorist roles um she was wow. in this with her her father her uncle and her two cousins they operated out of a cave just outside Leeds in Yorkshire I've got a, I've got another example of a, of a lady who was high up in the women's institute in Yorkshire and she mentioned she was uh in charge of these resistance cells she would say in case the Germans oh. came her job, using her role as head of WI would drive around Yorkshire delivering weapons and explosives and she she's her or granddaughter specifically said that she had said that she'd went to a lot of caves in and around Yorkshire. And Irene Lockley, completely separately, had told her daughter that she operated out of a cave just outside Leeds. It's all this oh, stuff. Wow. So, yeah, so is that so is just I, I'm trying to we're running we're running for time, but I'm intrigued yeah. now. So yeah. 
those is she operating from one cave or is she going to one cave to another cave to collect weaponry so no she's she's operate her basically her bunker as it was again yeah was 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 in a cave outside and that's where they would have operated from wow as a as a cell so that'd Amazing. be up on the Pennines as well. So I, I, my my first thought with that is you're well behind, you know, the GHQ line was never built in Yorkshire. Or no, in fact, it was, yeah. you know, let's just say it wasn't built because very little of it was. You're way behind that line. You're, yeah, so this you know, is purely, are... purely post-occupation. So they wouldn't, they wouldn't even yeah. have anything until after we'd been defeated militarily. And that's why, yeah. Incredible. That's why SIS kept hold of it because SIS had a hand in... The auction units and special duties, but handed it over when it became clear that they were probably going to be useful just for anti-invasion, which is obviously a military role. Yeah. Mm, Soon as yeah. the military weren't involved anymore because we've been defeated, that's when SIS's Section Seven group would come in and start as a as a post post defeat. Yeah. Resistance. Mm. And there's escape yeah. lines. A ready for, yeah. Yeah. That's so there's amazing. Lines, there's there's assassination. There's 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 radio sets. Um, uh, well, I talk about it. Can't wait for your episode on Amanda. It's going to be incredible. Powerful. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's powerful. so they cool. Could, they could, yeah, it, and they could move the wireless sets so much more like the French Resistance, where the special duties branch were obviously in set locations, like they're yeah. in a church and the aerial was going up the steeple, stuff like that. You couldn't shift it, and you could. The Germans could really quickly triangulate, get there. That's why they've got a life expectancy of two weeks. That's why they're purely anti-invasion. Whereas Section Seven could shift about, could shift their wireless. Yeah. If anyone's got any crazy stories. Hit us up because contact be- the show. It, we, you can message us on yeah. the podcast uh, Twitter page. Find the Facebook page. It's all there. Um, amazing. Help Andy if you can, people. So to end this week, I found a funny little tidbit from because I've been doing a bit of research on this defences, uh, the Home Guard Monthly magazine. Mm. Found nice. out it was the Territorial Army magazine until it was oh. started to be published as the Home Guard Defence magazine. Then was later that on, part of. War, Part of the um, effort to forget the TAs Pretty and much, the yeah. It seems it. Yeah. It seems it. I've narrowed it down to it was printed in Fleet Street and it cost six D at the time and it was a monthly publication. They're astronomically right. rare now, or they're getting rarer. They go yeah. on eBay for upwards of 60, 70 quid. I can't oh, seem to buy one cheap right now, but I will have I'm gonna buy one's my mission. <laughs> right. So I've narrowed it down to those publication dates and the money. I was trying to see if I could have put something together for the show but it, it seems a bit rare but i found mm. some that listings on ebay had pictures of 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 um articles so at the end of every every issue it seems to have a question and answer set. uh it's called you want to know and it says home guard queries of, of general interest are answered ex- expertly below why not send us your own problems so it's like agony aunt but sergeant or something right my plastic explosive is no longer malleable yeah but it's great so this this is one uh, little section of it from december 1941 in, in in the back of the issue cause for resignation i resigned from the home guard because my company officer insisted on the brass work of our gas masks being cleaned for every parade i am now a fire watcher because i do not believe in spit and polish with hitler looking at us across the channel that's from av <laughs> Amazing. And the, the reply is <laughs> cleaning brass is not a duty with most Home Guard units, but it should not be forgotten that officers vary in their whims and hobbies. Volunteers should humour this sometimes. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> but there's that. loads in there. Amazing, there's like wearing of badges, about compulsory um parades, there's stuff about grants for uniforms, because 
some guys had issue getting their grants back. Yeah. Um, There's some really interesting stuff it's to amazing. be honest, on the on the politics of the Home Garden and, yeah. and the and the the difference between the 1940 volunteers and then as it mm. there was yeah. even like inscription into the Home Garden by that point. Yeah, you yeah. Know, and, and that's why I want to get some of these magazines because some of this yeah. stuff seems to only be in there. Then I've oh, just quickly. Then there's a tangent I went on as well that local civilian defence uh, groups were creating their own newsletters. I was looking at the Bromley, the local oh. Bromley news. They had the Bromley um, Siren, which was like a newsletter for the ARPs, fire watchers, everyone who wasn't armed forces. It seems that everyone's got their own. Oh, that's cool. So if anyone knocking around, I'll do my own little appeal. Anyone knocking around that's got anything like local, there's like oh, this weird bit of paper that's got like some stuff about local defence on it. Send us a copy. I'd love to yeah, see it. Definitely. Anyway, that's been your Homefront History episode for this week. Thanks for joining us yet again, everybody. Um, don't forget Andy's appeal. I'll put something out on the Twitter about it. You can find us on Facebook, obviously Twitter. Search Homefront History Podcast. You'll find us. And thanks for listening. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye.